Good afternoon. Welcome to the Coffee and Poets podcast, where poets interview poets. This show is partially brought to you by the Sacramento Creative Economy Grant. We are recording live from the Brickhouse Gallery and Art Complex located in historic Oak Park at 2837 36th Street, Sacramento, California. If you want to listen to past episodes, you can go to our website, coffeeandpoets.com. I'm your guest host and poet, Tamar Saeed Mostafa. Today we will be interviewing Ronnie Bopla. Ronnie Bopla is a poet and visual artist and the editor of Bliss, a journal of erotica, which highlights the work of Sacramento poets and has won Best of Sacramento SNNR in the category of Best Local Erotica. She is the founder of the Sacramento Poetry Center's Thursday Night Poetry Workshop at the Valley High North, Lago North Laguna Library and has served as a judge for the Sacramento County Poetry Out Loud competition. This year, at the Our Life Stories, a cross-generational writers conference by Hart Senior Center and Kasumas River College, Ronnie will lead a workshop entitled Feminist Ekphrasis, Perception, Projection, and Power Dynamic. Welcome, Ronnie. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to the audience for being here as well. And thank you to uh, Lawrence for hosting this. Yeah. Uh, You're awesome, by the way. I love it. I appreciate it. I met Ronnie back in 2016 oh, or 2015? Probably 15. I'll go okay. 15. Yeah. And uh, as stated earlier, it was part of the Valley High North Laguna Thursday Night Poetry Workshop, which is now sponsored by the SAC Poetry Center. Correct? Yep. So I, I want to start with their because that space is still going strong today, and they actually had a reading yesterday. Yes. So what was the process like to start a space that's still going strong today? I remember going to a board meeting at the Sacramento Poetry Center, and that was my first board meeting back attendance back to the SPC space, the Sacramento Poetry space, because I had been a board member about 10 years prior. I had left, and then when I decided to come back, the makeup of the board had shifted so much and I saw little holes because the outreach was there, but it wasn't very strong. And I've lived in South Sacramento since 85 and I, poetry is, it's just non-existent in that area. So of course, when I jumped in again and I decided to become a board member, that was my first priority. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, the Valley High North Laguna Library had just been built. It was a really small library on Mac Road, and this library was funded, so they built a new one on Imagination Parkway. It's mm -hmm. a fairly new building. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the space itself was, you know, of course, had those elements of brand new, um, lots of opportunity. People are more interested in attending the library. And so that was an obvious for me. It's like, let's host a workshop. Mm -hmm. I had been attending the Tuesday night workshop at the Sacramento Poetry mm -hmm. Center, so I had the fundamentals down, you know, the way you run a workshop, the way you organize a workshop. So all that was pretty easy. I wanted to kind of do the same thing for Sac South Sacramento. Okay. What is important about these poetic spaces? More specifically, what do they need to be successful? Well, the only thing I think the single most important thing is 
a belief in one's own story. Once you instill that in each individual that you interact with, they believe that they are a poet because when they speak of their own trauma, their happiness, their, their life story, whether it's a child or older, it, it's poetic. And it's one of the beauties about poetry, beautiful things about poetry is that you, the medium, you don't even need a paper and pencil. So I think that that um, element, once it's transmitted to people around you, whether it's in South Sacramento or anywhere else, they, they automatically seek those spaces. So, you know, as a sort of administrator, you know, in that type of leadership role, I took it as a responsibility to create an, an environment, much like the brick house, really, um, and then make sure that they, they understand that there are people that actually back them up. Um, I think that poetry is alive everywhere we go, but these spaces help us understand how poetry fits in the literary art landscape. Uh, you mentioned your role as an administrator and also as a leader of this group. Uh, what are some of the intentions that you set for yourself in being the leader amongst, you know, I think when you and I were attending workshop, it was about a uh, consistent 10, 10 folks who, right. who attended the workshop and each come with their own meaning of what poetry is and how it evolves. So what are some intentions you set for yourself to be that leader? Well, I, I guess leader is kind of a misnomer. You, the more responsibility I gained, the more I understood that I don't know anything. So, but I think that enabling others to become leaders was one thing within the workshop. And the format is generally the same. It's the Amherst format mm -hmm. that we use, which is uh, people bring their poem, they, they share what they share the poem and then there's analysis and then we hear what the poet says. It's very simple. And it's a round, it's a table discussion. It's not one person giving them what it should be. Uh, we had one, one poet, and you may remember Emily, hard of hearing. Uh, she actually had cochlear implants. But during that whole time, she could not hear any of our poems, but she knew how to lip read. She knew how to write, and she hand wrote all of her poems. She had been writing for 30 years. So, so understanding that the hierarchy, if you, you take on the responsibility, but once you are there in that space, you flatten it out. It's a, it's a plateau of people working together. And in that process, I learn, they learn, and then whatever comes of that process, they, they move on to the next thing that they want to do, their own personal goals, whether it's in poetry or elsewhere. Am I, am, did I answer yeah, that? Yeah, that, okay. okay. that was the perfect answer. Yeah. Um, and one component of the workshop that I really appreciate is that when we would start, we would bring in a poet from outside the workshop, uh, oftentimes uh, a well-known poet. Yeah. Um, as, as just a way to, to kind of start off the workshop with a good vibe. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you have a poem here that you'd like to read to kind of start us off. Yeah. So if you'd like to read. Well, this is actually more to do with um, me reaching back into time. This is a poem by Charles Curtis Blackwell. He's a friend of mine that I've known for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. He used to live in Sacramento and then he moved to Oakland. But I don't need to preface it too much, except this is the original submission um, to Bliss, which is the erotic journal. And so it's, um, it, it starts off here. 
The title is In the Garden of the Sea. The hour of romance breathes heavy across the desert from the tips of your nipples and where the forest of your love meets my penis. Dip into my love and partake of the garden. The hour of fruits has come for us to pluck, to pick up the fruits and taste of our lovers' demands upon each other. Call my name in the night and spill the juices from your succulent lips. My name is Ah. The wind cries in my ear, arousing the night, causing the night to become longer. I never knew you before now. Squeeze me in your mouth and let me tingle about your garden until you scream my name time and time again. Pull me inside the sea of desire. Ride me about the waves. Cause me to desert the forest and the garden as the two of us ride the storm into the eye of the storm, penetrating love's demands upon our soul. And in between your wet kiss, your tongue turning about, I can feel the ocean floor. Oh. Charles Curtis Blackwell. Well, what are some of the, uh, the first emotions or feelings, especially after just reading it, that come to you? You know, I think it reminds me of the time, and we were just talking about Luna's Cafe, mm -hmm. uh, where I really had a chance to just be myself on mm -hmm. stage. And I, you know, that's First Amendment all the way. I mean, you, you go on that stage, you, you can scream, you can make noises, you can read poetry mm -hmm. that you can't read probably in some sort of, you know, thematic place. And that's where I met Charles. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it brings me back to that space, and that's where I was inspired to create that journal. It, it sounds like Luna's is a, a very affirming space. Definitely, definitely. Kudos to Art Luna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So I, I have a quote that I wanted to read um, to kind of piggyback um, off the wonderful poem you just read. It's a quote from Frantz Fanon. In the world through which I travel, I am endlessly creating myself. In the world through which I travel, I'm endlessly creating myself. So with that being said, I'd like to hear more about your story, specifically your journey here, and how poetry has, has in a way documented that migration. Can you speak to some of your early beginnings as you've been a fixture, as you said, um, in the Sacramento community and in the South Sacramento community for a long time? Well, it does go back farther, mm -hmm. but I will say one thing. I. I was gifted a typewriter when I was about eight years old, mm. and I won't go any far. I won't go into all the time space, but um, I I had typed something extremely erotic, mm -hmm. and I was experimenting with some of the language, and I slipped it into the ream of paper, and my grandfather wanted a piece of paper, so he found it. I came home, and. I am I am just still remembering that I felt humiliated mm -hmm. because it was it was a discovery on the part of the adults that I was changing as a person mm -hmm. but also I I didn't understand that I was actually just writing what I was thinking mm -hmm. so that's probably my most earlier memory but in Sacramento I um, it was writing has always been a medium um, as a matter of fact Lisa Lisa Abrams, she's having a book out. She's my English teacher from mm -hmm. high school. 
and she's still within the circle. So she, I was a student at Valley High School, and she was my creative writing uh, teacher. So mm-hmm. I've had different like kind of jolts throughout my education during my you know and own exploration where people have just kind of lifted me up. Um, so in South Sacramento, I am. Um, I mean, I almost get emotional about that place because I know almost every corner of that yeah. area. And when I see things that, you know, should not happen, let's just say, or, you know, my high school's changed, it's, mm-hmm. it's no longer an open campus and things mm-hmm. of that nature, I, I want to dig my heels in even further. But there's, but there's this reality where I, I, you know, I can only, I'm one person you know, Mm -hmm. without affecting the community as a whole. So poetry has served that purpose well by unifying people, Mm -hmm. like, for example, at that workshop. Um, And and we're bringing themes, we're bringing ideologies to the table. Mm -hmm. But then after the workshop's over, we go out. So I think that art in general does that. And and my, my own journey... I mean, it's hard to think of it as a linear process. It's very, uh, it's more of a cacophony. And so I'm, I'm still learning about it. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know if that's deep enough for, <laughs> for the question. No, that's, that's perfect. I have two questions, but I, I first would like to ask you to read a poem, if you don't mind. Um, the first poem I'd like you to read is Psychosis. Mm. Psychosis. Doctor notes at Scrubs Maximum Prison, London, 2002. Expressionless man barricaded mind exists silhouette. Dance like speed of pink flesh floating lotus in a pond. Imagination hostage. He writes his story with omphalic ink spilled in vagarious patterns, analyzed by anonymous carers, puts his finger through a moth hole in the chest of his blue sweater. Word moth flutters between synapses. Lemon squeezes out of his mouth. When I first read that poem, and hearing it now, I I remember talking to my partner who's in the audience uh, a couple days ago, how it really reminded me of uh, William Carlos Williams, um, because as, as a lot of folks know, William Carlos Williams uh, was a, a physician. And I believe that whenever he would go visit his patients, he would write his poems on his uh, prescription pad. So that, that was one of, the first, one of the first memories that, that came to me when reading that poem. And it, it gets into one of my first questions is, what other mediums influence your writing because we have a lot of performances that we undertake in our lives mm-hmm. and I've always previously I've I believe that poetry has been separate from my performance as uh, as a partner as a social worker as a student etc but in reality there's a there's a lot of meshing in between those there's a lot of spaces where poetry is alive right. um, so how does how does that seem to you I like that thought about bringing your your life, like if you're one, you're a person in one regard, but then your art reflects enough, just, you know, maybe an inch of you. 
Um, but that's not how I operate. All of my poetry really embodies what I experience because I learned a long time ago from some of my mentors, B.L. Kennedy, Jose Montoya, mm-hmm. Bloom. You got to write the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was criticized once right on Luna's stage for a performance I did. And I enacted being gay. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the poem, and I wrote. I've written a lot of gay poems about myself, and I was criticized because that particular person said that I was not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so relation in relation to this poem, that's kind of a separate thing, but truth telling. Um, I was a medical student at St. George's University, mm-hmm. and that was in 1997. And, you know, I became sick myself. I was going into psychiatry. I had studied medicine, and then I went to England for um, my clinical rotations. And that was in London, Barnett General Hospital. And I was, I was teetering between surgery and, and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I, I uh, fell ill myself. I was diagnosed with a mental illness. And I had gone through a whole slew of interviews of patients where I was considered the doctor and I would walk in and I have, you know, these patients and they're exhibiting all these symptoms, but then I became a patient. So at that time, I didn't know what was going on, of course. My headspace was in a rut and I was placed in the same hospital with my patients. Mm I shared the same floor. I shared the same food. I was in the same, you know, my my room was in the same space as their room. Mm -hmm. So having gone through all of that, I've written quite a bit about that reality. And, um, you know, obviously mental health is something that we all deal with at Mm -hmm. different levels. Um, my own experience, I can only say it, it sort of reminds me of Kay Redfield Jameson. If you're familiar with her story, she was a Berkeley physician. She wrote a memoir about how she, and she she's um, she was a clinician who one day she was wandering around in the parking lot, didn't know what was going on. Mm. And I don't know if other people have read her books, but um, so she herself fell victim to the subject matter that she was studying. Mm. And so now, you know, she's, I guess, call her one of my inspirations. She's, she's moved on, but she still grapples with, mm-hmm. with the mental illness. Mm-hmm. So this poem is about a man who was one of my patients, but it also has me interjected into that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know how he really felt. I'm, I'm just projecting. Yeah, that's that's such a unique experience um, for me personally. Since I'm I'm going through a social work program and my area of concentration is behavioral health, and you see such a, a hierarchy and, and a line of division between you know practitioner and clients, and your that your experience is very telling of when that line is erased. You know, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Just out of, out of curiosity. For those that are in the audience, for those who are listening at home, what is something you'd like us to know about mental illness? You are not the disease. Mm-hmm. 
you are you, you are, you know, that's a cliche, but you know, you are more than what the disease labels you as such. Mm -hmm. It's such a hard thing to break through. It's a really thick egg Mm -hmm. that you have to crack through. And even when you crack through it once, the next day someone piles on the rocks again. And Mm -hmm. you, you, you keep pushing out of that because, uh, believe it or not, there's a sort of an underground movement that people are engaging in that we don't get to see. Um, there are a lot of people and a lot of kind of organizations and, and thinking that's happening right now that is promoting that um, breakthrough mm-hmm. and really validating people. And, you know, it shouldn't happen that way, you know, but. And, you know, it goes back to my days in comparative literature at UC Davis. I read this book by Thomas Mann, Magic Mountain. And it's about this man who was suffering from TB. Mm. But they kept him on this mountain where there was a sanatorium. And if anyone knows what sanatoriums are, those are the secluded areas where people were isolated Mm. because of what they, the disease that they had and the fear that other people had of them. So it's kind of the same thing where, you know, people who suffer, they suffer in gradations. I mean, if you're going through a, a, you know, a breakdown or you're having an, a moment or a week or a year, that's, a, that's an urgent situation. And, and there's a certain level of trust that people have to have and others that are going to help them. But once you have sustained that, and once you've achieved that, um, you know, understanding that, you know, you've, it's a phase kind of, then you, you start building yourself. Okay. And, and I think that without that knowledge, people fall into a a sense of despair because mental illness is such a profound and experience. It, It eats away at people. You can't tell. Mm-hmm. You can't tell the person next to you is going through something. Whereas, you know, diabetes, of course, it's the same analogy, diabetes, mental illness, diabetes, you see the market edema mm-hmm. or the shortness of breath. But with mental illness, it's it's such a it's so profound that mm-hmm. you you don't have that luxury of saying I'm hurt. Um, and so people who have gone through it, people who work in those fields, people who have loved ones that suffer from mental illness, that's the community that's kind of the underground community that is working, working, working to kind of not erase things, but more of empowering people, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's very complex, very complex, yeah. Yeah. I know from from my experience with, with mental illness, it's very easy to it's very easy to have that identity attached to you yeah. um, and very hard to shed. You become that. You become uh, bipolar or borderline personality disorder that becomes as much of a marker as uh, as Muslim, as Arab American. Absolutely. Um, and it's it's very hard to get rid of that. One of the modalities that I, I'm really fortunate enough and privileged to learn about now in my studies is narrative which really works at separating the problem from the person. Because as you said, we have such a tendency to view ourselves as the problem. But in reality, the problem is the problem. We are we. So it's, I appreciate you, uh, you sharing that. How does poetry come into, into that equation to act as a vessel to contain that experience or that stigma? 
Well, you know, uh, you know, this is a poem that I just read, which which addresses it mm -hmm. sort of directly. But then, when I'm writing about, for example, civil rights issues mm -hmm. or issues that expose the the societal um, stains that are put on people for whatever reason, that's where um, where it might originate from. I mean, of course, I'm a person of color, so I also have that in there too. But um, I think the broader motivation of my poetry is 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 um, to keep saying the same mantra, and whoever's out there willing to listen, I, I appreciate it, and I want it to be heard. And you know, it might be the same people, it might be someone new, one person. Mm -hmm. So it's an it's a lifelong battle. You, mm -hmm. you never you never end. Mm -hmm. It will never end. And, and it doesn't discourage me at all because I'm doing it from a standpoint where who else is going to do it? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm experiencing a stigma. I'm experiencing maybe racism. I'm experiencing being, um, you know, left out of things or whatever the situation is. That's what defines my experience. And that's what I, I push into my work. It just happens. I don't have to think about it. I don't think I've ever written a poem that was just, you know, just a simple narrative, a descriptive poem. I don't think I've ever done mm -hmm. that, yeah, without any intent in it. Uh, as much as I'd love to continue this conversation, I really want to get to some of your other poetry. Um, I'd really like to hear a vowel, if you okay. wouldn't mind reading that. Thank you. A vowel. Had I known the river would be this wide, how many bridges I would cross alone, I would have saved the lizard song. I know now with all faith, I never should crush a bee with a broken wing, nor swing against the storm of fate, catch birds in flight whose nests should never be dismantled, nor forget the beetle's ritual in life, its severed systems in death. I know now, leave things unsought. Desire has not with the inevitable end to suffered suffering of creatures. It is not in my realm to skin a cactus, loosen its vine, or salt the water it cradles. If only I had believed after drought comes monsoon, I would have saved the Gila song. I am tall, yet do not see height of prairie weed. It bends in the wind. Now I know suffering is never just felt under skin, but before roots in darkness of space within ash. There I can only plant queen wreath for a bee. Wow. I, I really want to get into some questions about your writing process, but before I do, I want to know what, how does the natural world influence your writing. And, and part of what I say that is because um, we lost a, a great natural world, well, a great poet, but a poet who really specialized uh, with the natural, natural world, Mary Oliver, passed mm -hmm. away this week at 83. Um, so how does the natural world influence your writing? Well, um, I think that I do see destruction around me, around, uh, that's caused by our way of living. Um, and I think that being a science 
nut in, in some ways, pardon the so-called pun. Um, it's, it's, once I jumped into science, I realized that the control we have over the world is much greater than we actually know. Mm-hmm. Um, destruction isn't just at the micro level. Of course, we know about it at the macro level with the formation of nuclear weapons. So this is not something that just happened over evolutionary processes. This has happened due to our high intellect and our willingness to go into that direction. So with that much power, and we're passing it on to people who have power to make decisions, I think that the natural world, you know, albeit you know, the environment that we live in is, is under attack and it's happening at different levels. Uh, that's as simple as I can say. Um, I have very strong influences around me. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, at, over time as a poet, you kind of, you migrate towards people who um, have similar synergy, mm-hmm. okay? So Joshua McKinney has been a very big uh, promoter He's been a proponent of eco-poetry, which addresses the environment in poetry and the writing process. So he has, you know, become sort of a mentor and I take classes from him just as, you know, I've got to keep learning. But the natural world is is something that we kind of forget about because we don't want to address it. And and it's, it's a constant cloud, I think, so to speak. It almost kind of comes off as an elegy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. So elegies, yeah. I'm taking a class with McKinney. It's called Elegy mm-hmm. or the Elegiac Poem. Mm-hmm. I've written two of them so far, and I'm working on one today. It's going to be an elegy for John Lennon, but I'm trying to bring in my mom because she learned mm-hmm. English by by listening to Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to tie in those two things. But um, yeah, I've written two pieces and he's he's been pretty good with his critiques. Do you want to read one? Yeah, yeah, I did bring those. Um, awesome. One is Atonement and one is an elegy for Benazir Bhutto. Which one should I read? Um, let's start with Atonement. Okay. This has 10 stanzas mm-hmm. and each stanza has either three or four lines. Atonement. Whale of conch, descent from Gomak, Gunga Maya, daughter of Brahma, melted body of Vishnu. Your voluptuous rage, destruction halted by Shiva. Gunga Maya, daughter of Brahma, his locks holding you in spiraling majesty. Fear abated now a whisper. Ganga Maya, daughter of Brahma, resurrected in the bosom of earth, your countless deaths, countless pronouncements, forgive me for destroying you. Wow. Wow. It's beautiful. Those last three stanzas, uh, starting with resurrected in the bosom of earth, very strong. It kind of piggybacks piggybacks off of what we were just talking about with the natural world. So you, you mentioned Dr. McKinney, mm-hmm. um, who I know from taking classes at Sac State. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to lump a, a couple quotes in together in regards to your writing process. Mm-hmm. The first quote I have is from T.S. Eliot, um, who said, poetry is escape from emotion. Poetry is escape from personality. Mm-hmm. I remember I read that quote when I was 18 or 19 years old, mm-hmm. um, and I hated it so much that I decided to put it on a whiteboard and, and have it as a reminder because something spoke to me even though I really didn't like that quote. And over the years, what I've, what I've learned, and Joe Wenderoth, who I studied with at UC Davis, uh, who read a lot of my writing, said, when you encounter trauma or you encounter uh, a certain experience, a lot of times you need space and time between a moment happening and then writing about mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna bring in Dr. McKinney because one of his quotes is, you don't owe the experience anything, you owe the poem everything. Mm-hmm. So with those three quotes kind of mashed up, I just kind of want to get like what your general response is to having time in between trauma occurring or an event occurring and then mm-hmm. writing it, mm-hmm. and how maybe your, uh, your writing process takes shape mm-hmm. in those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there are poems in people and us that are being written. We just don't have it down on paper. And so that is part of, um, that could be part of an experience that we had when we were really young. And up until now into adulthood, then you're, you're actually making it manifest into a concrete item that can be shared or not shared. Um, McKinney's quote is interesting. I would probably... He's not here to defend it or anything, mm-hmm. but I would add um, uh, something about the performance poet. Because when you experience something, that is almost like a performance that's happening mm-hmm. in real time, right? Yeah. Um, for example, my mother was beaten severely by my father for 10 years. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of you know, trauma that I experienced mm-hmm. through that. Um, and then I've written about it. Mm-hmm. But then there's that moment when you actually decide that you're going to write it, create art about it, maybe even just tell your therapist about it. And then there's that third step, which I would throw in there, is what do you do with that? And then do you, and the performance aspect is when you actually deliver it in an interview or on the stage or you create, um, you know, a script for acting. So I think that... For me, the, the line blurs between those. I like the fact that McKinney tries to distinguish those two because he, him, he has helped me really focus in on the word on the page, which I wasn't always in tune with. Um, and so I think that's he's affecting my process, but it doesn't change me as a poet because I can I can go into any of those spaces. I can go into performance in a, in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So I think the experience, um, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of the questions that I, that I wanted to ask is, uh, it's in response to a question that you asked me in 2017 when our roles were, were reversed. Um, you had mentioned in regards to specific trauma that you deal with it in your own language, in your own head that you don't necessarily have to espouse it to the world. So I'm going to get into a little bit of um, poetic theory because I've thought about it a lot lately. Poetic theory, you know, says that once, you know, every writer wants an audience. We all want, or else why would would we write 
if we don't want an audience, if we don't want to share our work. The problem with that is, is that once we, in a way, finish our poem and we give it out to the world, we lose our agency over it. We, uh, we have our intentions in mind, we have our own interpretations in mind, but once we put it out to the world, it, doesn't, it no longer matters what we had in mind for it. It matters how our audience is going to interpret it. And it kind of brings me back to what you had mentioned uh, regarding your performance at Luna's. So this gets into my question of, once you're finished writing and you don't have any more agency over it and you experience something like Luna's or at a poetry reading or just sharing your work with others, how do you navigate that loss of agency? Well, um, this reminds me of when I teach art because I'm an educator for the Crocker Art Museum. So when I teach art to kids, I tell them, look, I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything about the artist. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you what it says on the plaque, what they wanted. Mm-hmm. You look at the art and you decide. Okay, because there's a narrative in the art that the artist probably intended, maybe mm-hmm. not. And then when you look at the art, you're creating your own narrative from your point of view. So, you know, I'm willing to give up that agency. If someone came up to me and said, you know, that poem atonement, it means that you didn't do your laundry yesterday. Well, I would probably correct them and say, well, it's a little bit more about that. Yeah. But I mean, it's, a, it's about the way you... It does have to do a lot with how much you are willing to let go of, mm-hmm. of the agency of over your work, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, and I, I like engaging with people, though. I like talking like this about work because it, it makes me grow as an artist. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, one side you let go and then one side you you talk about it and, and you... Um, Hopefully, both both sides you know grow from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love that part. So it's it's really hard to draw a line there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, it's. I mean, my opinion of it is it's. At the end of the day, I really don't care what anybody has to say about my poetry. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, I, I put it out to the world. I, I love an audience, and I. I'm glad that people have a visceral reaction to it. Um, but I, I like to retain as much agency and as much intentionality. Uh, especially when we get into moments of trauma or yeah. uh, for me, uh, you know, I performed at Luna's last week and write in my poem about Stockton. Yeah. Um, I write a lot of poems about Stockton because I'm so proud to be from that city. So I want right. to kind of give what my experience of that city has been, right. which for me has been very positive. Uh, we have about five minutes left. So I okay. want to just ask one question to have you read one more poem. Okay. Um, let's start with the poem, uh, <clears throat> Dealer's Choice, whatever poem you'd like to, to read. I think I'll go with Benazir. Okay, perfect. Um, Benazir, the epigraph. Then the moon joined in and a few of the tenor-voiced stars, and the earth offered its lovely belly as a drum. Hafiz. Drumbeat followed you into exile. Coalescent furies, mercurial justice. Dark sound bomb did not annihilate your ideology, your hope for justice. You were brought up a bloom in fields of fallen kings. Light shone over Pakistan, glories called you justice. Visionary for the terrorized, the spoiled innocent. Oh, unabashed lips, mottled berries, confidant to justice. Moon eyes lined with coal, like empty dark sky around stars. You led women of Islam to know the transparency of justice. You said this triumphant triumphant woman, I follow your promise, 
Human dignity fights greed. War is no means to justice. Exposed tyranny and military rule, bloody bite of the extreme. You, voice of the downtrodden in all cities waiting for justice. Drumbeat filled your exile. You drank from empty cupped hands, which gushed sweet compassion, mercy's perfect justice. When you returned, your urgent cry spoke for the illiterate, accused the uniform and idolized democracies willed by justice. Protected daughter, mother of prayer, your wish is the icon. I breathe the air of your voice, mourn bodies deserved of justice. Return to me so I may tend to the wounded at your feet. Teach us to learn from the ordinary, to deliver speeches anaphoric for justice. Moment of your death, a sound blast, every second beat of my heart. Will you return to the people, share hope-filled stories of justice? I, Ronnie, follow your echo, Benazir, from the tops of Chigori. White scarves descend as flurries for human justice, human rights and justice. That's beautiful, and I think it's a perfect lead-up to my last question. Um, how critical is it for poetry to detail the times and the circumstances we live in, being that human rights and justice is such a recurring theme? And that, that's a guzzle. Um, so what role does poetry play in that? I think that whatever, if you're a formalist or if you're a writer in uh, free verse or if you're a visual artist, I think that it continues to be one of the most poignant things that we must undertake. Whatever, because through the lens of our experience, we experience it again and again. Mm -hmm. um, and it is our responsibility to share that with others, whether they've experienced their own trauma or if they've never experienced anything at all. There is nothing like someone reaching out to you and you taking their hand and helping them. Yeah. If someone is reaching out to you and needing justice, and you not offer that help, then that is a disservice. Mm -hmm. And so poetry, art in any form, I believe, is one way of us grabbing onto that hand and leading them into a space where they need to be. I think that's the perfect way to end, and I want to thank you for doing that for me and for doing that for a lot of folks in Sacramento. Thank you. Uh, thank you to The Brick House. Thank you to Coffee and Poets. Thank you to the audience. Thank you.